1: Is our society too ridiculous to solve its problems? I'm Sean Illing and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. This is the question at the center of the recent hit movie, Don't Look Up. At least this is how a lot of people interpreted the film. If you haven't seen it, the movie is about a pair of astronomers who discover a planet-killing comet barreling toward the Earth. And they try to warn everyone that it's coming. But they quickly realize that no one cares.
0: It's somewhere between six and nine kilometers across. So it's big. It would damage the, the entire planet, not just a house.
2: The entire planet, okay, well, as it's
1: damaging, will it hit this one house in particular that's right on the coast of New Jersey, it's my ex-wife's house, I need it to be
0: hit? I'm
1: sorry, (laughs) are we we not being clear? We're trying to tell you that the entire planet is about to be destroyed. Okay. Okay. Um, Well, it's, um, you know, just something we do around here. You know, we just keep the bad news light. Right, it helps the medicine go down. And speaking of medicine, tomorrow we- The comet is intended as a metaphor for climate change. And as a film, it's about as on the nose as a satire gets. But by almost any measure, it's been a massive success. It's the second biggest movie in the history of Netflix, and it just earned three Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. Still, the critical responses to the film have been all over the place. Some thought it was too dark and fatalistic, Some thought it was too heavy-handed and preachy. And some thought it just missed the mark. I haven't stopped thinking about the movie since I saw it about a month ago. I really don't think the central message was that we're all too dumb to solve climate change or any other existential problem. I think the movie had its sights on the elites, on our institutions and the incentives corrupting them. And that's not exactly the same thing as calling Americans stupid. So I wanted to dive into the movie now that we've had a little time to digest it. I reached out to David Sirota, a longtime journalist and a co-writer of Don't Look Up. We discussed the responses to the film, what he thought the movie was trying to say, and whether he feels more or less optimistic about our situation after watching the world take the movie in. Oh, and just a quick note, our discussion will go into details about what happens in the film. So if you haven't seen it, you might want to skip this episode and watch it first and then come back. David Sirota, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, first of all, congratulations on the uh, Oscar nominations. That's exciting as hell.
3: Yeah, it's something I never would have expected in my life. I still feel like I'm having kind of an out-of-body experience. Like, when does the dream sort of end? And apparently the nomination really happened, so I'm pretty psyched.
1: Well, I mean, look, it's been, I guess, almost two months uh, since the film was released, and I know it's been uh, an absolute whirlwind. How are you feeling about it all now that you have a little bit of distance from it?
3: I'm thrilled with how the movie has been received. I'm thrilled with how it has spurred so much conversation. And I'm thrilled with how passionate the response has been. When we put this movie out and we started putting it together, we knew that it was going to prompt really intense feelings all over the place because it touches on so many different themes. I mean, it touches on the climate crisis. It touches on our respect for science. It touches on media ethics, media responsibility. It touches on whether our government works, whether it can work. It touches on our democracy. So you kind of knew that it was going to have a big response. But I I will admit, I didn't know it was going to have this big a response. Like, when you have a movie with that cast, lots of people are going to watch it. But for it to become a global phenomenon where the term don't look up or just look up, those terms are being referenced uh, around the world in the context of politics, in the context of media, uh, when it's the uh, second most viewed movie in the history of the largest streaming platform on the planet i mean that is a level that i didn't expect and i'm really thrilled about and my hope is that ultimately the movie is the beginning of a conversation a larger conversation that it grabbed people by the lapels and i also am hopeful that people do not see the movie as destiny or prophecy that people see the movie as cautionary that things do not have to go the way they go in the movie that things can go in a different direction but we have to choose to go in a different direction and the hope is that the movie is the beginning of recognizing that we are at a potential turning point well we'll get to that and uh the
1: film definitely set my mind spinning in a million <laughs> different directions But I do want to ask, for the abbreviated origin story of this thing, I mean, how did it even come to happen in the first place?
3: So Adam McKay and I have known each other for many, many years, going back to the mid-2000s. And we've been very good friends for a long time. And we spent election night 2016 together. We were watching The Returns, and it was obviously horrifying. And, And soon after that, Vice came out. And it was a very divisive movie. And I should say, I think part of the reason why Adam McKay's movies generate such a response is because he's doing movies that are in the here and now. It's about our current world today, and people have strong feelings about our current world today. And soon after Vice, I said, listen, man, that was a great movie, but you really have to use your superpowers of comedy, but also mixing comedy and politics for something that addresses the climate crisis. And he says, "Yeah, you know, I really have been trying to figure out how to do that, and I don't want to do a kind of Mad Max post-apocalyptic dystopia, and I haven't been able to really figure out how to do it." And we kept talking, and at one point I think I shared him a couple of stories that I was reporting uh, about climate. And I said, "Man, I keep reporting these stories, and it just uh, they don't feel like they ever land." And I said, "It really does feel like there's this asteroid headed towards Earth, and nobody cares." And he said, wait a minute, maybe that's the movie. And I was sort of like, I, maybe? So we started spitballing this, and then he says, listen, I'm gonna go write the script. And I said, okay, yeah, right, okay, fine. And like a month later, he comes back, he's like, I got a draft of a script. I was like, wow. And he shows me the script, I give him some notes, he goes back. One thing leads to another, oh, I think we're going to get Leonardo DiCaprio, we're going to get Jennifer Lawrence. And I keep saying, yeah, right, man, right. I mean, I know you're Adam McKay, but like, that, that's just not how the world, really, does that really happen? And then, I don't know, like a week later, it was like, they're sending the papers for you to sign because this is actually happening. My point being that in Hollywood, a lot of things are supposedly going to happen and then don't happen. This, it was like, he got in his mind, this is the thing we're going to do. And he actually made it happen. And I was kind of blown away. When when he said, we're going to shoot the movie, I was like, "I I couldn't believe it.
1: I mean, obviously, you're primarily a journalist. Did you feel on some level that you could do something here through fiction that you couldn't do otherwise, that you could tell the truth more powerfully and more clearly through a fake story about a real thing than you could by just doing kind of traditional journalism? Who, what,
3: when, where, how? I think the power of story is unbelievably compelling. The human species has thousands and thousands of years of conditioning for story, for narrative. I'm a fan of movies, and I was excited that we were going to use the art form of movie to tell a story about the kinds of things that I spend my days reporting on. And so what was really exciting was, this is a movie, again, it's about climate change, it's about science, it's about media, it's about corruption, it's about government ineptitude. I mean, those are the things that I cover every day in the real world. And then to mix it with powerful storytelling and comedy and that great cast, I knew that it was an opportunity to get the themes of that reporting to a much, much bigger audience. I mean, I can write the best story that I can possibly write about the world. For better or worse, that story is not gonna get hundreds of millions of people to sit there for two hours to consume that story. It doesn't mean that journalism doesn't matter. It just means that it's a whole other way to get to an audience, a giant audience, that is largely inaccessible to journalism.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. You know, obviously, Adam is a huge big-time director, and as you mentioned, this cast is just insanely star-studded. Did you, did Adam feel like you needed all that star power to make this a successful vehicle? Was that an integral part of making this as big as it's been?
3: From the beginning, one of the goals of the movie was to reach... The largest possible audience. In a sense, that is a populist viewpoint that this was not a movie made for a small audience. This was a movie designed from the get go to try to get to as many people as possible. So there's a couple components of that. One, it's a movie whose story is somewhat familiar to the audience. There are big blockbuster movie themes in this movie. I mean, people say, oh, you know, it's Armageddon for climate change. In a way, that was deliberate. People are used to that asteroid crisis, end of the world kind of movie. And so in a sense, we used that form for a story, I would argue was beyond just funny and entertaining, but actually had a serious message. Another component was, as you allude to, getting a big cast because a big cast potentially brings in different audiences that are familiar with different members of that cast leonardo dicaprio jennifer lawrence they have huge fan bases ariana grande has a different kind of fan base getting all of those fan bases to go watch this movie was part of the goal of trying to reach beyond one or another small niche audience and get to as many people as possible You guys
1: were already making this film when the pandemic exploded. Did that change the direction of the story in any significant way?
3: Well, two things happened. One, Adam went back to the drawing board on some scenes to try to tune them up to be even more ridiculous because reality's ridiculousness had caught up in some ways with the movie's original ridiculousness, and we wanted to preserve the sort of satire of it, which is kind of sad about what was happening in reality with this kind of rejection of science and Donald Trump's antics with all the kind of wild declarations that he was making about COVID and the like. But also, I think the movie ended up being only like one or two clicks away from reality as opposed to like 10 or 20 clicks away from reality. It's a very hard place to get to, right? You you can be so far away from reality that it doesn't seem believable and it just seems zany. Or you can be too on reality and at that point, it's almost documentary. I think we, we landed right in that narrow zone. And that's why I think the movie really works well. But I also think, I have this theory about it. I also think that's why it evoked such passionate responses. There's this concept in sci-fi called The Uncanny Valley, which is basically this idea that if you see a droid, an android of a human, a cyborg, that the human brain is comfortable with things that it knows aren't human, and it's comfortable with things that it knows are human. It gets freaked out when it's something human-like, like it's very close to human, but you can detect that it's not exactly human. And I think the same phenomenon happened with this movie, which is that it wasn't exactly reality, and it's not so zany that it's clear that it's not reality. It's right in that uncanny valley where you're watching it, and you're like, this really could happen, and this is funny, but this is kind of real, and... I think it was Neil deGrasse Tyson said it was the best documentary he ever saw. And my point is, is that I think it getting so close to reality but being a little bit off reality so we could still laugh at it actually is what makes it disturbing, compelling, and a little bit jarring, a little bit affecting.
1: Well, speaking of all those responses, you know, I'm curious what you make of it. I, I know audiences mostly liked it. Critics were you know, all over the place. And my sense is that you were pissed that a lot of people may have missed the point of the film altogether is that an accurate reading
3: no i mean i wasn't pissed that people missed the point i was a little bit confused that the message of the movie was less important to some folks than other parts of the movie and i want to be very clear about this look you do not have to like this movie You can hate this movie. You can love this movie. That is not a reflection on your political values. It's not a reflection on whether you believe in climate science or don't believe in climate science. I think the thing that was confusing to me was that the message of this movie is pretty clear. And it's I think we should all be able to stipulate that it's an important message. And I think that's what ultimately comes through. Some of the feedback was, oh, you know, the movie's too on the nose or the movie is too, uh, quote unquote, smug. These sort of words that don't exactly mean anything. And smug, that, let's use that as an example, That presumes that the audience knows everything that's already in the movie, and you're just telling them things they already know. And I don't think that's actually true. I think there's a lot in this movie that lots of folks in the audience may know implicitly but haven't really thought necessarily about or haven't laughed at. I also think the whole it's kind of too on the nose. Listen, I think one thing that the response to this movie tells me is that there's a lot of pent-up demand for movies, television shows, and the like that actually wrestle with the scary things that are happening in our world. There's almost a relief like, hey, I'm scared about climate change, and we should be scared about climate change, and we don't really talk about climate change. We've been kind of in denial. Like, climate denial is a little bit of like, I can't look at that thing. It's too scary. And I think that the response to the movie, the enthusiasm for the movie on both sides, by the way, at least says, hey... This is something that at least says it all out loud, comes right out and says it and lets us struggle with it and wrestle with it. And it's not beating around the bush. It's not running away from that. And I think that's what we need more of. And again, whether you like the movie or hate the movie, the point is, is that I think that's what films, TV shows and art should be. It's the thing that comes out and puts in front of us the things we're scared of, the things we don't like to talk about, the things that make us uncomfortable, and spark a set of conversations to actually make us think about these things and wrestle with them. I mean, in the
1: end, who in your mind was the target audience of the film? Who did you really want to speak to? Who was it for?
3: Well, there's a couple folks. First and foremost, it was very gratifying to know that Climate activists and scientists who have felt not listened to, felt seen and heard by this movie. That at one level, this movie is saying, we hear you, we see you, you have been mistreated, and this movie is about your struggle and how you shouldn't have to struggle with trying to get the word out. So that's one part of the audience. But I also think part of the target audience is an even bigger part of the world that knows climate change is a serious problem, but that for various kinds of reasons, doesn't want to fully engage with it, doesn't really feel like it's an urgent problem or doesn't want to think it's an urgent problem, right? There's a comfort in saying, hey, listen, you know, it's 30 years from now, 40 years, I'm not going to be around And what we wanted to do with that audience is reach them in a way that says, actually, this is a crisis we have to solve now. And the way to start solving this crisis is, first and foremost, to stop frivolizing everything, stop looking down, right? That sticking the head in the sand is not going to get us where we need to go, even if it's kind of comforting. Motivating that large middle to move from, yes, it's a problem, I'm not sure it's urgent, to, yes, it's a problem, and this is urgent, that is how we're gonna ultimately start addressing the climate crisis, to mobilize that segment of the population with the segment of the population that already knows it's a problem.
1: So this film clearly wants to grab our attention and motivate us to do something about climate change and do it right now. But I didn't think that individual people were the primary target of the film's critique. When we come back from a quick break, I'll ask David about what I thought was the movie's most powerful plotline a story about failing institutions.
2: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com.
1: Let me toss at least one of my primary reads of the film at you and see if you think, I'm getting warmer or just, you know, a moron. But yeah, all the climate change stuff is there, obviously, and it's low-hanging fruit. But I found myself thinking as I was watching it, and then after I kind of sat with it for a while, I detected a, a deeper story about systems and incentives and the perceived loss of agency that we feel when we can both see what's wrong with the world and also feel totally powerless to change it, which is not quite the same thing as saying we're all in collective denial, nor is it the same thing as saying you know, we're all stupid. And I think a lot of people may have read it that crudely, and that seems to miss something a little deeper, at least from my vantage point. I'm curious what you think.
3: I'm glad you you bring that up, because that was the other thing when I mentioned that some of the pushback was, oh, the movie is smug. It's looking down on people. I actually don't think the movie looks down on people at all. I think the movie is a critique if anything, of elites, people with lots of power, institutions, government, and the quote-unquote regular folks actually are the victims in this. That you have various scenes where the regular folks figure out what's going on and know they're being lied to, they're being misled. I saw somebody say, actually interesting, that one of the most optimistic parts of the movie was there's the guy at the president's rally where she's saying, don't look up. And the guy is cheering on at the rally. Then he looks up and he sees the comet, and he says, what
0: the hell is that? I fucking lied to us. Um, the president just texted me.
2: Don't trip. It's all good. Don't trip.
3: And that it's optimistic in the idea that in our tribalized politics, somebody would look up from the leader that they follow and say, wait a minute, I am being lied to and this is not acceptable. That right now it feels like we're locked in this forever battle between uh, one set of politicians and their followers and another set of politicians and their followers. And no one wants to look up to inconvenient truths that may dispel or debunk what the leader is saying. So I think your point about underneath this, the feeling of powerlessness, the feeling that we're trapped inside of a system that is designed to frivolize information, turn information into entertainment or distract us from things, that we're trapped in this in order to make us powerless to deal with big crises. That's ultimately underneath it all. That's the lament. And I want to be clear. We're not saying that even the best of us aren't immersed in that either. There's this little scene in the movie that I am a huge fan of. It's Dr. Oglethorpe, the NASA scientist, who's trying to save the world. He's put Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence on this ridiculous television show and he's watching the television show. And he's like really excited that they're gonna finally blow the whistle on the asteroid coming towards Earth. And right before the segment that Leo and Jennifer Lawrence are gonna be on, they have this absurd segment with Ariana Grande and her boyfriend. My little bubble bee. Will you marry me? Oh, wow. Oh,
1: my God, of
3: course. Yes! And they cut back to the NASA scientist, Dr. Oglethorpe, watching. All right, DJ Cello. He's, like, excited about the drama between Riley Bina and her boyfriend.
1: Well, the fireworks have certainly gone off today.
3: And the point, I think, of that little scene is to say, listen, even this guy, the top scientist in NASA, who's trying to save the world, even he is caught up in this powerful, immersive bubble. So the point of that is, it's not to say there are people out there who are better and smarter and more advanced and rise above it all and aren't immersed in this. It's to say this system that we're in is a problem for all of us, even the best of us who are trying to do the right thing. And that we're all, in a sense, prisoner of that system until we do everything we can to break out of it.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you said that. And I I know your politics and I know your sympathies are not with those in power. And this movie strikes me more as an indictment of elites than it is an indictment of just, you know, regular people. And I think that distinguishes it from something like idiocracy, partly because of my background. I'm primed to think more about institutions than I am individuals. And, you know, this climate crisis, as you know, isn't a science problem or a knowledge problem. We know everything we need to know in order to do what we know we ought to do, but we seem unable because you know, we need institutions that are better than we are. We need incentive structures that are better than we are as individuals. We don't have them. And that is its own kind of existential crisis. And that is, I think, lampooned here in a pretty impactful way.
3: It's such an important point that there is no single individual superhero way to solve this problem, or really lots of the different problems that we face. Whether it's the pandemic, whether it's economic inequality, whether it's the healthcare crisis, right? These are not problems that any one superhero can solve. And I think about that a lot in my own journalism work, thinking back, for instance, to FDR, You can tell a superhero story about FDR, for instance. FDR, who created the New Deal, who led the country out of the Great Depression. You can create a great man story of history about someone like FDR. And that we now live in a culture, by the way, that I believe has taken that great man theory of history to its extreme. I mean, if you think about social media, followership on social media, right? Just think about the act of following someone on Twitter. You're following one person. We we have taken the great man theory of history. These great individuals are the reasons that we have done great things, as opposed to mass movements. Social media, I think, has extrapolated that to its extreme. But I don't think that's the way it actually works. Even back, With FDR, a very strong, beloved president who was a great president. But you can't understand something like the New Deal unless you understand the labor movement, this giant movement. If you just tell the story of FDR, you're not telling the story of the context in which he was operating. And so the point of that vis-a-vis the movie is I think a lot of people psychologically are relying on just get the right guy in there get the right president in there, and they'll save everything, they'll solve everything. And, you know, if we get rid of Joe Manchin or cinema, and we get everything aligned with the right pieces, then it'll just happen. But that's just not the way things work, that the crisis in this movie, in Microcosm, is a crisis of the context of the political system inside of the movie, political and media system, can't react constructively to demonstrable facts that we need to react to immediately. It's not just the president can't react, it's the system, that bubble can't react. And so I think to get out of these crises, you're right. We need to rebuild institutions that don't necessarily rely on the whims of one senator or one president or one individual. That is what an institution is. It's a thing that is bigger than any one person. And we have a crisis of institutions right now.
1: And I guess that's why I keep going back to this feeling of helplessness. And maybe I'm uh, <laughs> projecting a little bit here, but you know, my producer, Eric, had flagged a clip for me when I was preparing for this conversation of a, a Scottish philosopher named Jonathan Rousen, talking about this idea of a a meta-crisis. And you know, it's about a feeling we all have that the world is not right, that it doesn't make sense, that we're not equipped to deal with the problems we have, and we can't really imagine a better world. It's like there are these multiple overlapping crises with common roots, and at some point, you just become numb or unable to process it all. It's just too much indifference or cognitive dissonance or despair are natural, if unproductive, responses to that feeling, you know?
3: And and I sympathize with that. There's no easy answer to that feeling of helplessness and despair. And I would concede that the movie's story of these scientists trying to blow the whistle, they feel helplessness. I mean, that is the Jennifer Lawrence character. If you take the two characters, Leo and, and Jennifer Lawrence, and you make them kind of the voices in your own head, Leo is the voice of, listen, things are bad, but I can make this system work to solve the problem. And then you have Jennifer Lawrence, who's like, things are really bad, and I'm going to try my best to try to grab the system to work, but the minute it fails, it's just going to demoralize me, and it's going to prove to me that it's all hopeless. And those are the two voices that I think any rational person looking at this world probably hears in their own mind about the world. And I think there's no easy solution to that if we can stipulate that there is no individual solution to a problems that require collective action. Then we are also stipulating that we are never going to get the instant individual gratification of doing a thing and singularly solving such large problems. It almost requires us to think differently about what it means to be a human being in this world. And I can also tell you that in the day-to-day, it doesn't feel grandiose. It's never gonna feel grandiose. It's never gonna feel big because these huge problems, they don't get changed overnight. And I think, frankly, social media and media culture in general, in addicting us to these dopamine hits, I think leads us to believe that if something isn't giving me instant gratification right now, it must be valueless. It must mean I'm, I'm not solving the problem. But I think we have to step back and rewire ourselves and say, something like climate change, you and I could be working the rest of our lives, doing the best possible work to solve that crisis. And it's not going to be solved at the end of our life, but it may be better. And so training ourselves to take gratification and satisfaction in that day-to-day And having some sense of, I don't like calling it hope or faith, but some sense of confidence that this is how things actually change for the better. And by the way, how they have always changed for the better in the past.
1: Well, it's such an important point. And part of the problem, and I I assume you feel the same way, certainly this is a theme I detected in the film, you know, is that... (laughs) people have lost faith in public institutions, in government, in authority, and they've lost faith for very good reasons. The government in particular, the American government, has delegitimized itself over and over and over again, from the forever wars to Enron, to the financial crisis, even to COVID in some respects. And so it's not just about reviving trust in institutions. It's about creating institutions that deserve our trust. And the same is true of elites. The issue isn't a lack of trust
3: in elites so much as a lack of trustworthy elites. Listen, the distrust, the shredding of the social contract between the public and its government is both a product of a right-wing ideology that has beat the drum about how evil government is inherently. I mean, that's been going on for at least since the Reagan era, if not longer. But it has also been a product of, during times of crisis, especially recently, the government absolutely falling down on the job and at times completely lying to people. I mean, think about the average person who's, let's say, 25 years old. They've lived through the country being lied into the Iraq war. They've lived through the media and politicians lying us into economic deregulation that led to the financial crisis, and that also led to the aftermath of the financial crisis, which I review in our podcast Meltdown. An aftermath of the financial crisis where the people who created the crisis got bailed out, while tens million people got thrown out of their homes. They've lived through the pandemic, in which. In many cases, the government seems to have not done a fantastic job. And at times, in high-profile ways, the government seems to be in collusion with the media to cover up some of the worst parts. I mean, I think about the reporting I've done on Governor Andrew Cuomo and him giving his nursing home donors legal immunity amid a nursing home massacre and him being on CNN being celebrated every night. So the point is that there's opportunists saying the government can't do anything right. That's been going on for 40 years. And then the government at times when it could do things right has made choices to do wrong and to mislead the public. We're now at the end of that. We're now here and people are wondering, why doesn't anybody trust the government? Why is there so much misinformation out there? Why do people not trust the media? Why are they going to folks who are pushing all sorts of wild misinformation who are outside of traditional establishment media? Well, listen, I'm not saying it's good that people are doing that. Like, I'm not saying misinformation is great, but you can't, ask why, when you shred the social contract, when you lay waste to the trust between institutions and the public, you at minimum can't be surprised that people don't immediately trust what they're being told. And so rebuilding that trust is the thing that is so necessary for all of these crises. We need to rebuild trust between the government media institutions, the fourth estate and the public in order to make sure that climate science lands and actually motivates the right policies. We need to rebuild that trust to make sure that public health declarations and policy land and are trusted. And I think some of the difficulty with this is that sometimes science doesn't give us black or white, yes or no answers, right? Like, yes, yes. There's a new virus. We don't exactly know how it's going to work or spread. And this vaccine is 80% effective, 90% effective. Opportunists will take the inherent, natural, non-specific parts of science, the parts of science we can't prevent. Opportunists will take that and exploit that. And the only way to combat that systematically, that exploitation, is to rebuild trust between these institutions and the public. And the only way to do that is for these institutions to actually have a commitment to not lying to us and to actually have a commitment to represent most of us rather than a handful of elites and billionaires.
1: Well, right, and (laughs) there are a lot of problems here. I mean, one of which is that we really can't converge on a common story about anything anymore, you know? And it makes me wonder if the media is even equipped to cover actual disasters in anything like A productive way, whether it's due to the addiction to bad news, the commercial incentives, the doom narratives, the both-siderism, you name it, right? I mean, you're doing a podcast right now, as you just mentioned, about the 2008 financial crisis, and I couldn't help but notice how these are two very different events, but essentially the same story. The climate crisis, the financial crisis, it's the same story, a story of greed and inertia, of power and corruption, and how these things And the inability to mobilize people allowed us to sleepwalk into one catastrophe after another.
3: I certainly think the media plays a big role in this, and I want to be specific about it. I think corporate media plays a big role in this, that when your democracy is mostly dominated by media information that is produced by a corporate system that is averse to holding corporations accountable— or to scrutinizing corporations, then you're going to get the kind of media that we have. As an example, we know that the fossil fuel industry is at the heart of what's causing the climate crisis. That should be a story every minute of every day. It is not a story every minute of every day, not because there's necessarily some secret conspiracy of like, Five people at the five biggest newspapers twisting their mustaches saying, ha-ha, we're not going to cover this because of our oil industry backers. But it is to say the larger corporate media world knows where the advertising money comes from. The larger corporate media world knows the kinds of ideologies, the kind of fealties that get promoted inside of those institutions. The point is is that it's less media corruption – and more a problem, in my view, of media culture. Think about what the difference between corruption and culture is. I kind of think of it as like that famous adage from David Foster Wallace. One fish swims up to the other fish and says, hey, how's the water today? Or the water's warm today. And the other fish says, what's water? That's culture, that you're so immersed in it you know the incentives, you know what's going to get you in trouble, you know what the advertisers want, you know what the higher-ups want, that you know what topics to avoid, you know what topics to roll your eyes at. And so my point in saying that is is that I think a big part of the problem in our media culture is is that it is so thoroughly corporate media-dominated. And there is such a small segment of independent media, and I'm not saying independent media is entirely perfect either, but that the mix is so skewed that... We get situations like, I'll give you another example, this whole situation with inflation. Almost all of the debate about inflation, discussion about inflation, is about so-called wage inflation. Oh, workers are being paid too much, and they're demanding too much, and we gave them too many unemployment benefits, which means they can demand higher wages, and that's driving higher prices. What's not discussed very much is the data showing that corporations who have become oligopolies or monopolies are simply using the ruse of inflation to just jack up prices, pay their own executives, talk about wage inflation, much higher pay, pay out shareholder dividends. That's barely part of the conversation at all. And you have to ask yourself, well, why is that not part of the conversation? Well, I would argue it's in part not part of the conversation because the owners of media don't want that to be part of the conversation. And maybe some of them genuinely think the real problem in the economy is not, you know, Wall Street jacking up uh, rent rates or, or whatever. The real problem is the Arby's workers making 25 cents more an hour. And you have to ask yourself, well, we could actually address the problem with antitrust laws. I mean, some folks have thrown out price controls. There's all sorts of things you could do that corporate America doesn't want, but it's not part of the conversation. What's part of the conversation is something that's really not the problem. And so then the question becomes, well, how can you solve problems? If your discourse is dominated by gatekeepers of information, of the discourse itself, if it's dominated by those folks who don't actually want to solve the problem. I don't have an easy answer for that. But that is fundamentally the discourse problem in this country, in my opinion.
1: Well, not wanting to solve the problem is a really important point, right? I mean, there's this terrifying, but also wildly hilarious character in the film, right? This is the Mark Rylance character, right, who plays this kind of Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk like industry titan who single-handedly and mindlessly imperils the entire planet in pursuit of just a little more profit, only to fail in the end, ensure our doom and then scuttle off earth in a spaceship with I guess the other, you know, billionaires or trillionaires. What was the underlying message
3: there? Well, there's two things. One, that obviously the greedy folks at the top will come up with ways to purport to be solving problems, but they always happen to be solving problems in a way that enriches them and empowers them. What I really liked about this character was, and it was deliberate, this character is not a Dr. Evil kind of character in the sense of, you know, Austin Powers. This is a character who, I think there are two kind of hallmarks to the oligarchy in America, speaking broadly here. But one is that, they don't say, hey, we're not going to solve problems. We don't care about anybody. Uh, it's just all about me. They don't explicitly say that. Some of their behavior looks like that, like when Jeff Bezos is not paying his workers well and then building himself a super yacht that Rotterdam needs to construct a new bridge to let out of its bay. It's that big. I mean, that is kind of doctor Evilish behavior. But public message-wise, it's no, no. We acknowledge that there are problems. And the set of quote-unquote solutions to those problems all happen to be the solutions that enrich us. That enriching the oligarchy can exist beside and in tandem with solving problems. The problem with that is, is that there are lots of problems where it's you just have to choose which side you're on. Example, you can't solve the problem of high medicine prices in America unless you make drug company executives accept somewhat lower profits. You just can't do it. Either... The customer is going to pay the world's highest prices for medicine that the customers have already essentially funded through their own tax dollars in terms of research and development. You're either going to keep being charged the highest prices in the world or you're going to come up with ways to say you can't charge those prices anymore for drugs that we, the taxpayers, already invested in. And at some point, either the consumer is going to win or the drug company executive is going to win. So I think in that character, you see this, hey, we're going to solve the asteroid problem but in a way that makes us rich. The thing that they can't tolerate is we're gonna solve the asteroid problem more safely, but we're not gonna get rich. That's the option that has to be removed. So I think that's one part of it. I also think the other part of it is, is that again, saying that the character is not Dr. Evil, is that you see in this character that he actually believes in what he's doing. He's created almost a religious belief in what he's doing. And there are some sort of Dr. Evil characters in real life. But for the most part, that oligarchy has come up with a kind of quasi religious view of what it does so that it doesn't have to look in the mirror and say, I'm being Dr. Evil. The character, the Mark Rylance character, looks in the mirror and says, I'm saving humanity. I'm the good guy. I'm the hero of this story. And I may fail. And, you know, of course he does fail, but I'm doing my best here. I believe in what I'm doing. And I think that a lot of those folks, they've convinced themselves of that. They're not even cynical about it, even though we, the rest of us, can see how horrifying and destructive it is. That's something we have to deal with. Like I think all these people at the top who are collectively a boot kicking the face of humanity, they think they're helping us.
1: Well, yeah, there's uh, a <laughs> there's a lot of uh, you know Peter Thiel, Atlas Shrugged energy um, going on in that character, but also yes, this is partly why the DiCaprio character, who's one of the scientists who discovered the comment, you know, at one point he looks into the camera and you know sort of screams hysterically, you know, what have we done to ourselves, or how do we fix this? But the arc of DiCaprio's character, this journey from serious, authentic concerned scientist to kind of half-baked celebrity is so instructive. And you can see that same process of self-justifying delusion that propels so many into power, right? You just keep telling yourself, if I can just make a few more moral compromises, I can get inside the system and I can change it from within. But obviously that movie, pardon the pun, ends the same every time. The system changes you, not the other way around.
3: A hundred percent. And it is really a tried and true path. And it is one of the most problematic parts of our politics and culture, which is this, it's almost like a Jedi mind trick. And you hear people talk about this when they go through the revolving door of government to business. Oh, listen, I was a regulator. And then, you know, I went to go work for the company, the industry that I was regulating. And look, I feel like I can make a lot of money getting paid out. And I feel like I can take the expertise that I learned as a regulator and I can help From within, make the industry better. And I think that I have to believe that folks in that situation have an inkling that what they're saying is self-serving, that it's not an empirical, dispassionate analysis. It's that I want to go get that money. I'm going to be paid a lot of money. My life is going to be awesome. But I need to come up with a way to wake up in the morning and look at myself in the mirror and feel like I didn't just sell my soul. And I I think about it the reverse way, too, which is that the average politician, when they go down to the floor of the House and they cast some vote that's horrible to just crush their own constituents, most of them aren't saying, I'm crushing my constituents. The art of lobbying in American politics is to convince the lawmaker that they are actually doing right by their constituents, because as monstrous as some of these politicians are, Most of them don't like thinking of themselves as monsters. So the most effective lobbyists are the ones who convince them that say voting down drug price measures, for instance. Yeah, hey, you're not hurting your seniors in your district. You're helping the pharmaceutical industry come up with more and more innovative medicines for those seniors. Yeah, maybe they won't be able to afford it, but the industry needs to be able to innovate. And so you're actually doing the right thing. And I think that Obviously, the average member of Congress doesn't want to think of themselves as a monster, but they also want to get that campaign cash from the lobbyists. So they say, oh, you're giving me a way to get the campaign cash and to vote the way you want me to vote, even though it might be screwing my constituents, but you've told me it's not. So now I feel like I can have my cake and eat it too. And I think that is, frankly, I obviously think that is false. I think there was a quote attributed to, I think it was Ed Asner. And I think about this comment a lot. He recounted this story where somebody said to him, why do you make your political views so explicit? Doesn't that kind of complicate your life in Hollywood? Right, because the more outspoken you are as a sports figure or an actor, the more controversial you are, potentially the more the major studios or the major sports teams are going to try to stay away from you. I mean, we've seen that happen. And he said something to the effect of, why do I speak my mind on political issues? Because I know when I get out of bed in the morning, I have to be able to look at myself in the mirror. And I think what that really says is you always have to choose which side you're on. That in almost every case, there is no, I can sell my soul and also do the right thing. That you just have to make that choice. And I think the entire system is designed to make us think we don't have to make that choice. But that is a choice we all have to make. it. Look, it's uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable set of choices.
1: It's hopeful to think that maybe our fate isn't sealed and that we still have meaningful choices to make. So how does that square with the ending of Don't Look Up? Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, it's a bit dark. After one last short break, I'll ask David if he's feeling more optimistic about the world after making this film. The film ends in a... (laughs) a fairly dark, kind of hopeless place, but also a a kind of beautiful and sentimental place. Is that where you are? Or are you feeling more energized and uh, optimistic after the experience of making this film and kind of watching the world take it in?
3: I am definitely feeling more optimistic in the sense that I know there's a pent-up demand for this kind of content specifically. And there is more generally a pent-up demand for a more rational set of institutions and a more rational world. I know that people are frustrated. Clearly, the reaction to the movie is one of many expressions of that. So I am really optimistic that that energy to start solving problems is there. But I am also deeply concerned with the fact that the energy can be channeled in so many different ways Because of so many different opportunities for uh, nefarious opportunists, and this has been a theme of my work for many, many years. I wrote a book called *The Uprising*, which is about how there was all this political foment. It's back in the sort—I think it was 2007, 2008—and that it could go in many different directions. It could go right-wing, it could go progressive. It was going to be unpredictable, and I think what has happened is that it, it actually did go in a productive direction in that 2008 election, in the election itself. That people were sick of the Bush administration. I mean, that was a horrific administration. I mean, I, I think we don't even, it was so horrible, it's hard to really think about. Yeah. I mean, Iraq and Katrina, and just, it was just awful. And people were sick of it. And they, they actually voted for change. And I think that what happened is that one of the biggest tragedies in history that we don't necessarily recognize as one of the biggest tragedies in history, which is that the Obama administration came in with this huge mandate and made a series of decisions to use that mandate to try to prop up the current system, to try to just preserve it for a little bit longer. Top-down bailouts, not bailouts that helped actual homeowners, et cetera, et cetera, And what ended up happening was, and there was a paper on this, by the way, about how this has happened in other countries in the aftermath of financial crises, that the government that comes in, if it doesn't try to deliver real help to working people, if it only tries to prop back up the system, ultimately that ends up helping the opportunists, the right wing authoritarian opportunists. And I think there is a direct line from that reaction to that financial crisis to the rise of Donald Trump. And you don't have to trust me on that. Steve Bannon is the one who has said the legacy of the financial crisis is Donald Trump. And so, updating that to now, I remain concerned that yes, there is this pent up frustration. It could go in an incredibly productive direction to deal with the crises we know we need to deal with. But if we have a government, a set of institutions and government leaders who are most focused on just simply propping up the current system, then That opens up opportunities again for that energy to be steered into a really unproductive, authoritarian, nihilistic, right-wing direction. And thats I'm afraid that that's where we are now. And one last thing I'll say about this is that I'm not the person who, you know, recognized this. We've mentioned FDR really interesting thing about FDR is if you go back and you look at the speeches he was giving, he explicitly recognized this. And I'm not talking about implicit, I'm talking about explicitly. There's this quote that he said, it was in the late 30s, and he said something to the effect of other countries have given up on democracy, not because the people there didn't like liberty. They gave up on democracy because they saw a government that was dysfunctional and didn't care about them. And they decided to give up democracy in order to get something to eat. Point being, he understood that I have to deliver for the working class and solve real problems immediately, not just because it's the morally right thing to do, not just because it's the macroeconomically right thing to do, but because if we don't do this, there is going to be real, true, genuine fascism in this country. And it was on the march back in the 30s in the United States. And I fear every single day that the people in power right now, whether it's on the issue of climate change, inequality, the health care, that they aren't taking that situation seriously, that it's the same situation and they are not focused every single day on showing that they are delivering. And by not delivering, they are imperiling our entire world.
1: Well, we're at the end of our time here so uh, i'll just say this you know i'm not really qualified to judge the artistic merits of any film i'm not a professional critic but i really appreciated and enjoyed this movie precisely because it made conversations like this possible because it raised so many fundamental questions about our world and the pathologies ripping it apart and that makes it a valuable contribution in my book. So thank you. And thanks for being here, David. This was great fun.
3: Thank you. And thanks for saying that about the movie. And I I, I want to add one other thing. The movie is for everyone. So you are a person who can judge the movie. That's what this movie is for. This movie is for everyone. And so I really appreciate that feedback. And I really appreciate this conversation. Thanks so much.
1: Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at Vox Conversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.